Good job. Tucker's going to come to church every Sunday for the rest of his life. <laughs> so, so, so this game, sorry, this is really good. So this game was meant to be a very simple illustration of the power of hope. When you believe that there's a potential for something bigger, better, and beautiful around the corner, it can sustain you. It can excite you. You know, there are a lot of things that human beings can live without. But there are certain things we die without. We die without air, without water, without hope. We die without hope. You know, um, human beings are incredibly resilient creatures. We can survive war, we can survive poverty, we can survive disease, but we can't survive a lack of hope, a belief that there is something bigger and better and more beautiful waiting for us tomorrow. Viktor Frankl wrote an incredible book called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Frankl was, uh, was uh, in one of the Nazi death camps during World War II, and he studied his prisoners that he shared his time with. And he took note of the prisoners who were able to sustain themselves during such a dark period of time, and those who crumbled under the weight of being locked away in the death camp. And he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning based on what he found, and he came down to this determination. Human beings cannot survive without hope. And those who were able to hold strong in the death camps, he, he found, were ones who believed ultimately that they would get out and that there was a greater meaning and purpose for them in their lives. And those who lacked a sense of meaning and purpose and a belief that they would survive, those were the ones who struggled the most. One of my, one of my favorite lines from Frankel's book is this. He says, those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. Those who have a why can bear with almost any how. His point is that if you lose hope, you lose your ability to endure. Not just in horrible situations, like being in a death camp in World War II, but he would argue in the best of situations. Because what carries us through good times and bad times is the belief that there is something better waiting for us around the corner. There's something good for us. There's a reason for us to stay strong today because there's something coming tomorrow. And friends, as we talk about what it means for us to be an irresistible church, this is what makes Christianity so poised for incredible impact today, yesterday, and tomorrow. What the Christian faith teaches, what the Christian scriptures say over and over and over again is that Jesus offers the best hope. There are lots of things that you can have your hope in for tomorrow, but Jesus' hope that he offers is the best hope. We've got the corner on the hope market, and the rest of the world needs to know it. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, I have noticed this, that the rest of the world, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, is suffering from the effects of having hitched their hearts to a second-rate hope. A hope that in the end cannot deliver on what it promises. Here's some examples of a second-rate hope. If, if your hope for the future is dependent upon your performance in your job, your ability to attain a certain salary or climb certain rungs on the ladder, that is a second-rate hope. If, if your hope for the future is based on your ability to acquire certain possessions that allow you to achieve a certain status or feel a certain level of comfort and peace through those possessions, that is a second-rate hope. If your hope for the future is built on your ability to, to curate this really interesting life full of interesting experiences that you document on social media and you get to go out and travel and have fun and you want to just live your life with wonderful experiences, that is a second-rate hope. 
If the hope for your future is based on other people, the kind of adults that your kids turn out to be, or your ability to find that spouse someday who's gonna love you perfectly someday, that is a second-rate hope. If your hope is built for the future on certain political ideologies that you think are guaranteed to make the world great again, that is a second-rate hope. Now, what I mean by that is that not that those are bad things, but they are very poor, ultimate things. They're second-rate because in the end, those things will leave you weary, they will wane, they will fade, and they will prove incompetent, impotent in their ability to deal with your deepest worries. What makes all those things, despite them being good things in and of themselves, what makes them second-rate hopes, first, is that they will weary you. They're all dependent upon you. If your hope for the future is about how well you do at your job, guess what? You better show up at Monday and kill it. If your hope for the future is based on how well your kids turn out or that spouse that you find, you gotta work really hard to find the perfect spouse. And guess what? You're gonna look for a long time because they don't exist. <laughs> Except for my wife. She's <laughs> exception to that rule. <laughs> if it's about how your kids turn out, you better hope you don't screw them up. Guess what? You already have. It's all on you. It will weary you. Not only will it wane or fade, will the hopefulness fade for you, not only is it, is it weary you because it's on you, but it will wane for you because such hope is ultimately hitched also to imperfect people and impermanent things. The political leader that you're so excited about will get caught in scandal. The job that you have can be lost in a down economy. The possessions that you're proud of can be destroyed in a the flood. They're impermanent. And then what you'll find out, often until it's too late, is that all those things, they don't deliver on your deepest worries. And, and you might not even realize this. Your, your deepest worries are this. Your deepest worries are whether or not you're going to waste this one life that you have, where you stand with the one who made you, and what happens when all of this is done. And what you'll find is that no job, no performance, no vacation, no piece of furniture, no person in your life can answer those questions for you, can deal with those fears for you. Nobody. And that's what makes Christianity and the hope that it offers so powerful. Because the Christian hope can. One of the ways to talk about the Christian hope that, that I, I particularly like to use is that the Christian hope is unshakable. Unlike every other thing you can put your hope in, the Christian hope is unshakable. It's unshaken by your performance. It's unshaken by the horrors of the headlines. It's unshaken by the performance of other people. It's unshaken by all the evil and brokenness in this world. It's unshakable. And it's unshakable for one reason. And Peter talks about this in the scriptures we just read. Let me, let me hit back on them so you can pick this up. Peter says this in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We have a living hope, here's the key, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It won't, won't die on you. Undefiled, it won't mess up and disappoint you. And unfading, it won't disappear on you. But it's kept in heaven for you. Peter says that the reason the Christian hope is unshakable, unlike everything else, is because it is anchored in a particular historic event. It is anchored in one particular moment that 
that doesn't depend on your performance or the performance of anybody else other than Jesus Christ. And that one event that makes the Christian hope unshakable is what? He talks about it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is is history. It happened. It was attested to by hundreds of people who witnessed to the resurrected Jesus. And, And the disciples who saw him resurrected with their own eyes and were so convinced of it, they were willing to die a martyr's death, continuing to confess it. It is a historic fact. And historic facts are funny things. They don't change. You can be a horrible person and mess up your life. Jesus is still risen from the dead. The people around you can all disappoint you. Jesus is still risen from the dead. The political landscape can get, believe it or not, even crazier than it is now. And Jesus is still risen from the dead. Historical facts are funny things. They don't change. And what that means is that no matter what happens in you, through you, or around you, the promises of Jesus are still trustworthy. The person of Jesus is still hope-worthy because he still died and he rose. It's attested to in history. No one can undo that. No one. And so the hope that he offers is shored up by this historic event that makes it unbreakable, unshakable, and bulletproof. I may fail, he is still risen. That's everything. Now, here's why this is important for us in this conversation of being an irresistible church, right? In a world where people are, are hurting and still looking for something because their hearts are hitched to these second-rate hopes that ultimately can't deliver, when we put the, the hope that Jesus Christ offers that is unshakable because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in front of those hurting hearts and those weary eyes, it becomes irresistible. And it begins to draw people to itself. In particular, it draws three types of people. It, it draws people who know they're screwed up. Uh, it draws people who are scared. And it draws people who are skeptical. It draws the screwed up, the skeptics, and the scared. Because they know that this hope can't be shaken by their mistakes, by their questions, or their fears. So, for example, as a church, as we put the hope of Jesus upheld by the resurrection of Jesus front and center, people will be drawn to this church who are painfully aware of just how much of a mess they are. And everybody's got a little bit of a screw-up inside of them. It just takes some of us longer to realize it than others. A screw-up is somebody who understands that that there is an expectation on them from every single person in the world, from their spouse, their kids, their coworkers, their peers, uh, their, their boss, and even their God. And they understand that if an accounting were taken of their performance, an honest accounting by all those people, that they would be in trouble. And people who are aware that they're a screw-up, they they tend to take that awareness and they they try to spend their lives justifying why they're a mess or ignoring the fact that they've made mistakes or, or erasing the fact that they've made mistakes by being as good a person as possible. But here's what the resurrection of Jesus allows. It says, look, Jesus is still risen no matter how much of a mess you are, so you don't have to justify how much of a mess you are. You don't have to lie about how much of a mess you are. You don't have to deny how much of a mess you are. Just come here and confess how much of a mess you are. Because it doesn't change jack with Jesus. So you might as well admit it to him. 
And you can come to this place and realize that he can withstand anything that you bring in the door and anything that you can confess. Because he is still risen. And there's nothing that you can confess that will shake the fact that he's risen from the dead and proven himself to be trustworthy and true. He makes it safe for the screw up. He makes it safe to realize that your judgment day has already come and gone. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. So many of the people that I know, including myself at times, who are aware of how much of a mess they are, they are afraid of the looming judgment, not necessarily from God, but from somebody else out there in the future and what, how they're going to fail people or disappoint people and what the judgment will be upon them for having failed or disappointed. And what, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means is that that judgment day ultimately with God for you has been moved from the future to the past. Your judgment day was the day that Jesus was punished on the cross for your failures and for mine. He took that punishment and then he was buried in the tomb dead as a punishment. And then he rose from that grave. He rose out of your punishment and mine to prove that that punishment was, was enough. The, 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 the price was paid. The payment was complete. And now the day of judgment in the face of failure is already over. You've been forgiven. And so now instead of worrying about some accountability in the future and you don't know how that's going to turn out for you, it has been moved to the past. Your judgment day is in the past and you've already been found a sinner but who's forgiven by the sacrificed and resurrected Jesus. And so what people who understand that get to do is we get to start a church that says this, come in the door as you are, whoever you are. Come in the door and you will face no judgment here. So often people stay away from church because they think that by entering into a church, they are inviting their judgment. As my friend Bill, who is a longtime unbeliever, said to me, every time I invited him to church, he said the same thing. He said, Matt, if I walk in the door of your church, the second I cross the threshold, I will burst into flames. <laughs> Bill was and is a very interesting guy. <laughs> but he thought by coming into the church, he would invite his judgment. But it's the opposite. What Christians believe is that judgment day has come and gone, and it's turned out good for you. And so you get to come in the door, and what we get to say to people who come in the door is, bring your whole self, bring all that you are, all your issues, all your mess, all you think, all the stuff you think isn't an issue and isn't a mess, but maybe is at odds with how I live. Bring it all in the door, and we will not judge you. We will not wave a finger at you. We will not stare sideways at you. We will welcome you. And you are welcome to, to sit your screwed up butt right next to mine as together we sit at the feet of Jesus and he looks at us and he says, judgment day has come and gone. And you are forgiven. You are loved. And when a world that is hungry for a better hope than the one that they're holding on to now hears that, that they can come in the door and it's not about judgment, it's just about mercy, grace, and forgiveness for all, that is irresistible. And it's irresistible to the skeptic, and maybe that's you. The skeptic is the person who has a ton of questions about faith or Christianity in particular. They find a ton of holes in the whole worldview and the whole thing. You know, there are those who are really skeptical about Christianity because they see it as odd, at odds with, with a scientific worldview. They get caught up on things like the age of the earth and the origins of man. You know, forget the fact that history is, is littered with brilliant women and men who see no contradiction between science and faith or faith and reason. 
Uh, some people are really skeptical about the Christian faith uh, because they see its, its scriptural teaching on, on human sexuality or gender roles or, say, care for creation as being outdated or backwards. Uh, dismiss the fact that, that throughout history, it has largely been people of faith who have championed the dignity of all and the care for life and creation. There are, there are some who are skeptical of Christianity for what's probably the best reason to be skeptical of Christianity, Christians. They've seen the, the horrible things we've done in the past. They see the inconsistency in the lives we live in the present. And they say, well, I don't want anything to do with that because look at all the people who ascribe to it. Which I understand, I, I, I get, I, I, don't, I don't personally obviously agree with that, but, but I understand it. But I think there's one big hole in that logic, just to take a rabbit trail really quick. That'd be like, that'd be like hating the Beatles because some dude named Dan had a few too many drinks at a karaoke bar and butchered a rendition of Hey Jude. Your problem is with Dan, not John, Paul, George, and Ringo, right? And I get that you're turned off by Christians, but that has nothing to do with Christ, very little to do with Christ, rather. And the beautiful thing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it says, bring your questions, bring your doubts. There, there is freedom for us to disagree on a whole lot of dogma. There's freedom for us to have uncertainties on a whole lot of theological issues. There's freedom for us to fight and argue about how it should all get applied. You want to know why? Want to know why? Because here's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees. That while those are important issues, none of them is central to the credibility of Christianity. None of them. There is one thing that is central to the credibility of Christianity. One thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he did not rise from the dead, then you are free to ignore him and everyone who ascribes to him. In fact, you should. Because he's no different than any other religious leader who said, I'm going to do a whole bunch of things and then didn't because he died. But if he did rise, then he demands your attention. He demands your focus. And what I would say is that if you focus on him and get him right, everything else falls into line. So, for example, uh, there's this, there was this guy named Dr. Simon Greenleaf. He helped found the Harvard University School of Law. And he wrote this book that is considered still to be one of the, the leading texts on the approach one would take to, to prove the veracity of a historic event based on available empirical evidence. So he wrote the book on that, still taught today at Harvard. And Greenleaf was known as a, a skeptic of spirituality, and an antagonist towards Christians. Uh, there's numerous accounts of him in his classes antagonizing Christians for their belief in what he called at the time the resurrection myth. Until one of his students said to Dr. Greenleaf, respectfully, Dr. Greenleaf, you are the expert on proving the veracity of historic events based on empirical evidence that's available. Why don't you take your own book and try to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ? as true or false, whether it did happen or it didn't happen. And so Greenleaf took them up on this offer, and after all of his study and all of his research, he came to the conclusion, he said, I'm, I'm utterly convinced, his words, I am utterly convinced in the historic reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went on to say this, this is a quote from his own work, about the evidence in favor of the resurrection. He said, I have an undoubting conviction of the integrity, the ability, and the truth of this evidence. Now, he still had his questions. He still had all of his problems with the Christian faith and Christian people. 
but he got the one thing right that mattered most, Jesus. And irresistible churches say this, if you're a skeptic, come in, bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring all of your dislikes, but start with Jesus. Did he live for you, die for you, and rise for you? If, if you get that right, if you wrap your heart and mind around that, and there's real evidence for that, everything else falls in line or will get figured out or honestly doesn't matter compared to that. And in a world where people are hungry for hope, to have a church that says, we're not afraid of your questions, your concerns, or your doubts, or your difficulties with who we are and what we believe, come in the door, and we'll focus on the main thing, and we'll figure out all the other things later. That's irresistible. But it's also irresistible to those who are scared. You could also say those who are anxious, who are frightened, who are uncertain. And I think you've noticed that we live in a world where there is a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ speaks uniquely to anxious people. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a glimpse of the very end. Jesus didn't just promise that everything's going to turn out okay. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is is the first fruits, the first tangible evidence of everything in the end being okay. Here's what I mean by this. Paul, uh, deep in the New Testament, says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who've died, that first fruits phrase is important. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The Christian faith at times talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the first fruit. If you grew up uh, on a working farm, or in my case, like with an apple orchard on your back property, you know what the first fruits are. The first fruits are the fruits that show themselves on the branches or in the ground first, and they are proof of a coming harvest. You know that the coming harvest is on its way because the first fruits have showed up just a little bit earlier than everybody else. And Jesus is, Paul rather, is saying that Jesus inaugurated the new world where resurrection happens with his rise from the dead. And he is the first who will rise from the dead. And when Jesus returns from sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now where he is, when he returns, all those who've died in faith, they will rise too like Jesus rose. And we will enjoy a resurrected and recreated world where all the things that make you fearful and make you anxious recurring cancers, broken relationships, cheesy church game shows, people who call you on the phone rather than text you on the phone, like like all those things that make you anxious and scared, they will be gone. And I realized that that would be an absolutely ludicrous thing to believe in. Except for one reason. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And it's said that he's the first fruits. And you will be the next fruits. And so what, what irresistible churches do is they look, at, they look at frightened people, they look at anxious people, they look at themselves, and they say, I know this world is messed up, I know we can't predict what happens tomorrow, we don't know what will happen two weeks or ten years from now, but, but we do know this, we know how it ends. And it ends like this. The good guy comes back. And what happened to him happens to us. He died, he rose, we will rise. He died, he lived, we will live. And it's going to be okay. 
Take a deep breath. And in a world where people are hungry for an unshakable hope, that is irresistible. Human beings are really resilient. But there are a handful of things we can't live without. We can't live without food. We can't live without water. We can't live without decent Wi-Fi. And and we can't live without hope. And we have got the corner on it, friends. So, So let us never, as a church, as we talk about the kind of church we are and that we're becoming, let us never, ever be the kind of church that does a bait and switch on other people where we look at people and we say, we say, you know what? Jesus exists to make your, to make your second-rate hope come true. If you, if you hitch your wagon to Jesus, he can make sure that you, you flourish at your job, that your kids all turn out great, that your spouse is even better looking than they are today. They, they, they can, Jesus can make sure that all your friends love you and people applaud you and everything's gonna go great for you. Just add a little Jesus to your life and he will make all your earthly hopes come true. There's, there's, there's a lot of temptation to do that, and there are a lot of people who do that, but, but here's what happens. When you attach Jesus to everybody else's second-rate hopes, when those hopes do what they always do, which is frustrate you, fail you, or, or refuse to come through for you, they will understandably associate Jesus with all of that and say, well, he must be a second-rate savior. And he most certainly is not. His hope is unshakable because he is risen from the dead. So bring your mistakes. There is forgiveness. Bring your questions. We're not bothered by them. And bring your fears because we know how it ends. It's gonna be okay. And when we share that, when we proclaim that, the world can't resist that. Let's pray.